It is wonderful to be together. And wonderful to be in the Word. Wonderful to see so many children. Uh, our future, we need to continue to work in that direction. Continue our study. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, a very interesting segment here that helps us understand the working of the Holy Spirit. We will uh, touch on some of the remaining points and uh, go on into the final section as well. You notice that the Holy Spirit returns to behind-the-scene mode quite a bit more after the church era has passed. But in Acts 19, there is a very strange situation. I'll read the first 10 verses. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Do you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened he did, and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I'll refer to another verse in this chapter just by way of uh, demonstrating the Holy Spirit has a great sense of humor. In, in verse 32, there's the theme verse for assemblies. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that some kind of a verse? <laughs> it's an assembly of silversmiths that are in view there. We certainly couldn't be characterized by anything like this, could we? Uh, isn't this a strange section? This is about 20 years after John's preaching that this takes place. Who are these 12 men? They had heard John's ministry. They were baptized into John's baptism. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I expect they were going about preaching that readily far after Jesus told them, I take the kingdom from you. You're not going to hear it again for a long time. Yet that is what they're proclaiming. And what kind of an understanding do they have of the Holy Spirit? None. We have not so much as heard of the Holy Spirit. Believers, to be sure. 
And uh, Paul takes care of that. And he says you should be baptized into Christ, and they are. And uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. As at Pentecost, this is a miniature catch-up Pentecost for these people. One of the principles of Scripture is if you believe the lesser revelation, you will the greater. The reverse is true. If you reject the lesser, you'll reject the greater. In the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says that. They, they have Moses and the prophets. They don't believe them. They're not going to believe the one raised from the, be raised from the dead. And that was the truth. Strangely enough, in that uh, account, there's the poor man Lazarus. If you turn the page in the harmony of the Gospels, the next event is Lazarus being raised from the dead. And the leadership of the Jews decides not only to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus as well. That's double rejection, isn't it? Well, this is catch-up here. And out of it, we learn quite a bit about this uh, concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are baptized into Christ's baptism. And at that very moment, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. There are a number of chapters in the Bible that treat the subject of baptism. We witnessed a baptism yesterday. It was wonderful. The Lord Jesus gives the Great Commission. Go and you're going into all the world making make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is the formula, if you will, of baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here we have this baptism taking place. We have detail of this in Romans 6, the theological perspective of it. In Colossians chapter 2, there's a great section on baptism. In 1 Peter 4, a similar kind of setting. And this is the pattern that is always in Scripture. As in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one faith one hope, one baptism. Well, it seems to me water baptism, spirit baptism is two things, but it's not. It is one baptism. In that baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, theologically what is accomplished is seen particularly in Romans chapter 6, we are identified with Christ at the moment of salvation. As many of you have, have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have died to sin. Water baptism will not render our being dead to sin. More is accomplished in Romans 6 than water baptism could ever accomplish. Water baptism is a symbol. And here is the primary teaching of baptism. We are identified with Christ. 
We are placed into Christ's body. We are in Christ. That is a totally church term. When I would write letters to my fiancé before being married, I would always sign it, love in Christ. Now that just wasn't a cute spiritual thing to say. We're in Christ. We are in Christ in a unique way. As in Ephesians 5, we are identified with him in a closer way than the physical relationship of marriage. Paul says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our union with Christ. The church is a particularly united group to Jesus Christ, and it is the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that places us into Christ so that we are viewed as that when he died, we died. And when he was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. In every instance in scripture where water baptism, which shows that symbolically, in every instance of it being mentioned, it is mentioned as close to salvation as possible. I have been teaching that for years. It is clearly what is taught in Scripture. The Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer, Lydia. Anyone that comes to faith is baptized immediately because at the moment of salvation, we are spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit. For by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. We have been identified with Christ. That intimate union in which it is said of us, we are in Christ. Spoken of no other group than the church. We did a study on that one time in our assembly and uh, uh, I got that assignment. And there are dozens of statements in Christ. It touches all of our Christian experience from salvation onward. The primary teaching of baptism, can I even say this, is not a public testimony. The Ethiopian eunuch was kind of alone. I know he had an entourage, being the treasurer of Ethiopia, but he got saved the Philip's running alongside and come off, you know, and he goes to Isaiah. And the eunuch says, Here, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip didn't say, you don't understand what it means. He didn't say you have to live a life first and get serious for God. Getting serious for God is Romans 12. Presenting your body a living sacrifice. Baptism... And salvation should be as close as possible. When did you become dead to sin? Moment of salvation. Right answer. Five extra points on the next quiz. Okay. At the moment of salvation. And the longer we wait, the less the symbol means. In the church, we should be teaching, in the family, we should be teaching all about salvation and all about baptism as it relates. So that it would be an instinctive thing. 
here's the way it should work. You're saved on Friday, you get baptized on Saturday, and you break bread on Sunday. Because once saved, you're in the body and you have all the rights and privileges. You're not a person under discipline. You can't take the Lord's Supper until you understand it. You've got to understand what baptism is about before you can ever be baptized. Here's water. What hinders? The Baptists have it right. There's always water in the tank. And consequently, it's the right temperature. <laughs> I remember when my daughter Linda was baptized at Lombard in show and tell the next day at school. She said the, the elders said the water would be comfortable, but it was cold. <laughs> well, good for her. She at least told the class who got baptized. I'm for that. The Didache said, Didache taught us that uh, the best way to be baptized is in cold running water. Think of that. Now, that's not scripture, but it was practice. So, we need to recognize that we are dead to sin at the moment, the very instance we say, I understand, Christ died for me. I receive with an open hand of faith the salvation so freely provided. Dead to sin and alive to God. And we are from that point to walk in light of our baptism. You should be able to say to me and I to you when we sin, you are denying your baptism. Which should demonstrate most of all to us that we're dead to sin. People say, kids can't understand that. My dog could understand that concept. She was a magnificent golden retriever. I've referred to her already. She's in heaven with Nelson. Dog went home to be with the Lord. As a puppy, I'd throw a... No, I wasn't a puppy. When she was a puppy, <laughs> I'd throw the ball out into the uh, little lake. Only in I, what would we call where we live, a lake. But there it is. We threw it out there, and the dog would go out. Wasn't afraid of the water at all. I didn't have to teach her to swim. It's a good thing. I don't know how to myself. When I was a kid, I read a book that more swimmers drown than non-swimmers. So I said, what's the point? Don't learn. <laughs> but come back. If I held the dog's head underwater, she knew that meant death. Right? It means death. I taught this in class one day in Survey of Doctrine. One of the girls who wasn't baptized got baptized that summer and she told the, uh, the preacher baptizing her I want you to hold me under until I squeeze your hand and you can hold your breath for a long time you know want to try it okay take a deep breath you all got it I baptize you in the name of the Father Son Holy Spirit she's under the water What was the audience thinking? She's going to die. And she understood the meaning of baptism. It means I'm dead to sin and alive to God. Based upon my faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that in, in Romans 6. Count yourself to be dead to sin. 
and alive to God. Reckon it to be true. Take it to the bank. It's an accounting term, a beaver term, okay? Take it to the bank. Peter has a different viewpoint. He says, arm yourself with this mentality that you have ceased from sin. Sin no longer has rule. You're dead to sin. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5. Now, for those of you who have children who are coming to faith, have a home where that's sort of the teaching that comes across when you talk about salvation and baptism and the responsibility of being a Christian and all the rest of it. I couldn't pull it off. The tradition is so deeply ingrained that it's when you get serious for God that it's very difficult to change that. It's hard to change things. Have you ever noticed? And it's a clear teaching. Every illustration in the epistles of baptism is as close to salvation as possible. Everyone. And uh, understanding is not the prerequisite. None of us understand the totality of the meaning of the other symbol, the bread and the cup. Hasn't that been an expanding concept in your mind? You understand more and more and more about that. So about baptism. Symbols are given for a purpose. I guarantee you remember when you were baptized underwater. It's weird, isn't it? Especially for you ladies with your beautiful hair. You come up a new creation. (laughs) I saw an adult male who had a comb over, baptized. And when he was baptized, he went down with a full head of hair and came up bald. (laughs) It all flopped over and he's going to go, and we laughed. We have been identified with Jesus Christ through spirit baptism, visualized in water baptism. We are dead to sin. That happened the moment we're saved. And we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. Chapter 7 says, that's pretty hard of Romans. That's pretty hard. I can't win. Chapter 8 tells us how to. And we'll see that in a minute if I ever get out of this subject. But this is an important one. Because it is one that the church at large has missed altogether. We either have it when a child is baptized at the beginning. Or you're saved and you're baptized later. Or many denominations have immediate baptism. I had a friend who was sprinkled as a child. He identified in the reality of faith somewhat with a group that baptized three times forward in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he became a believer in reality and he was baptized again. He said, I'm shriveling up like a prune from all of these baptisms, you know. Well, hopefully this will help our thinking. If we had a question and answer period, which we don't, I'd respond to them. But put that in your thinking, would you? Check it out in Scripture. I think you'll find out it's where it is. We are stressing particularly that it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us in the body of Christ. 
when we establish the beginning of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the one we make reference to. For by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. That is our initiation into the body of Christ. Spirit baptism then demonstrated that we are in Christ through water baptism, that we are dead to sin and alive to God to walk in newness of life. Visualize so we can understand Let's go on to the next subject. I, I just want to touch on the concept of... Thank you, sir. I hope you heard all that. Okay. Perfect. I just want to touch on sealing and earnest. The sealing... We are sealed for the day of our redemption. Uh, touches on eternal security. As the tomb of Jesus was sealed with the Roman seal, we are sealed with a mightier seal, the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, that keeps us secure. That seal of the Roman authority represented all of the power of Rome. It was not a huge thing, just a seal. The the yellow uh, ribbon in our display when they seal off and it has a statement on that the power of such and such a county or the government or whatever. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our eternal security is there. We have received the Holy Spirit as an earnest, the down payment, the guarantee that more is coming. Not more of the Holy Spirit, but more of what our inheritance is. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 will say, I reckon that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to follow. And uh, we receive an enormous inheritance. How enormous? We are heirs of God. What's the next part of that verse? Join heirs with Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Because all things were made by him and for him. And we enter into that inheritance and that we have received the Holy Spirit as an earnest, as a down payment, is a guarantee that we will enter into our full blessings in the coming day. Spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit who formed us in our mother's womb. At the moment of salvation gave us spiritual gifts. There are four listings of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, in the epistles, two twelves and two fours. That makes it easier to understand. Um, remember, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Comes out to about 20 different gifts. There's a difference between a natural gift and a spiritual gift. I think all human beings have natural gifts of some sort or another. Uh, one of the spiritual gifts is a gift of teaching. Do you think there are folk out there who do not know the Lord at all, who are not believers, who have a gift of teaching? Have any of you had teachers in school who could not teach? Listen to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know them by name. Yeah. They couldn't teach a fish to swim. Uh, you know, they got good grades and all the rest of it, and they know all this stuff, but they can't teach. 
It's a gift. It's a natural gift. It's a spiritual gift as well. I view uh, athletics as a natural gift. Would all you guys who consider yourself athletes please stand? Let's see you. I'm not being bashful. Come on. Oh, come on. Nelson, stand up, would you? Thank you very much. It's the truth. You can practice all you want, and if you don't have the natural gift of athletic, it doesn't help. We had on one occasion a student come to a mass who was, uh, had worked his way up in the major league to AAA. He was in the Met system, and he played in our uh, intramural softball team. Wait a minute, guys. Stand up in the back row. Come on now. Up, up, up. Yeah, there we go. He was in the Met system, uh, knew some of the players, had gone up to AAA. I tell you what, when he threw a ball in from center field, it was this high the entire way, and nobody wanted to catch it. <laughs> it's the truth. It hurt. You could practice all your life. I think mu- music is a natural gift. Lots of folks have great musical talent. None in my family. We gave him the opportunity. Uh, My daughter Lois, the violin. Oh. I wore earmuffs to the concert. I did. I sat on the first row with earmuffs on. Was that mean? (laughs) It was realistic, I tell you what. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, nothing. That's enough of that, you know. And we gave John the opportunity to play the trumpet at last about two weeks. He likes softball better than the trumpet. And it's a good thing. It's a natural gift. Other people fly with it. It's unbelievable. It's all part of giftedness. Now, the same Holy Spirit that gives in, in the entirety of the human race in natural gifts, and some of us are kind of generalist in that area as well. You can do a little bit of a lot of things. The same Holy Spirit, at that moment of salvation, gifts us spiritually. Unto each one of us is grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift from Ephesians 4. This passage in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us he distributes gifts according to his will. And they are different for each one of us. And there are a combination, but you can be sure... Now, there are all sorts of tests for gifts, just like there are for personality. If you're really smart, you can answer the questions to demonstrate that you have a giving gift. You know what I'm saying. Here's a hint. Would you rather be up in a tree meditating about Jesus or talking to people? I'd rather be up a tree. You're not an evangelist. Brilliant. (laughs) There's sort of that kind of a thing. But you can get some help from that. The fact of the matter is, if we're walking with the Lord and gathering together for worship and prayer and fellowship and teaching, and we're counting ourselves to be dead by sin, we will be exercising our spiritual gift just like we do our natural gift without even knowing it. It's nice to know it. If I had a choice of doing it or knowing it, I think doing it is a better choice. And I grew up in that kind of church where we did it. 
Now we know what it is and we don't do it. That's an overstatement, I realize. But there is some reality to that. Just try getting Sunday school teachers. It's hard. We all have a spiritual gift. It is in keeping with us all being so diverse. This is a biblical diversity. No one is in competition. On one occasion, in my rookie year at a mass, uh, I was called upon from the folk at uh, Woodside to come to speak. The preacher had taken ill that was scheduled. And I'd say, I said, I'd, I'd be happy to do that, sure. And I get there for breaking a bread. And do you know who's in the audience with me? Robert J. Little. Some of you don't know Robert J. Little. Some of you do. How many of you know that name? Okay. Wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, was the radio pastor of Moody before Don Cole. And everybody respected him. And he really knew the word. And uh, I thought, oh my. Uh, it was a custom at Woodside back in those days that the preacher and a couple elders would go up in the little room off of the uh, main platform to have a time of prayer in between. And I raced up there in a hurry. And the next person in was Mr. Little. I said, Mr. Little, I feel like Timothy preaching with Paul in the audience today. And in his uh, voice, he said, David, I'll put people to sleep that you'll keep awake. And you'll put people to sleep that I keep awake. That was really a great thing to say. He was saying, we're not in competition. I said, I don't like the odds of that. <laughs> but that was a huge lesson for me to learn. Can I say that again? How do you, how do you say huge, Steve? Huge. You know, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Equally beautiful as I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> okay, we'll go on from there. Uh, that was a huge lesson for me to learn. And I, I have lived with confidence in that. We are in our spiritual gifting as well as in our natural gifting exactly what God the Holy Spirit wants us to be. We're not in competition with one another. It's not always that way. I've uh, preached enough to know there is competition in preaching. And sometimes people like to preach the rookie under the table. I've been there too. And then you're not only speaking in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you are in the empowerment of the old nature, and that's not so good. You think that was good? I'll get you. (laughs) That's poor. We're individually gifted. There's not competition in church life. We don't have to be jealous of one another. What do we do when we see someone exercising a gift that is similar to mine in a better way than I ever could because of the intellectual awareness and prowess of, of a person. What do we do when we see that? We praise them. Who said that? Five extra points. We praise the Lord. That's right. I need to hurry on. Understand this giftedness a little bit. It is such a wonderful truth. After salvation. First message I gave, our brother prayed, 
Fill him with the Holy Spirit. That's a good prayer. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a term that Luke uses. Paul only uses it once, and he uses it in a construction that's altogether different than the way Luke does over and over again in the book of Luke, the gospel, and in the book of Acts. Paul is the only person in all scripture that commands a person to be filled. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts. It's the only command in all the Bible. It's the anomaly of filling. It's not the normative statement. Rule of hermeneutics is you build your theology on the normal use, not the exceptional use. And the normal use in the Old Testament, when the artisans were working on the tabernacle, they were equipped, filled by the Holy Spirit to do their job. And when the job was done, there's that fly again, the filling was done. You don't even have to be saved to be filled. John the Baptist was filled from his mother's womb. He came to faith much later than that, obviously. He had a special task. What was it? That's not a hard question. Be the forerunner of the king. Peter, standing before the same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus, and they said, you be quiet. He says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under having given among men whereby we must be saved. It's better to obey God than man. He was filled by the Holy Spirit. Little maid caused him to run. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he had enormous boldness. Equipped for a task. <clears throat> Dave Brown was equipped for a task when he said, if you're not saved, remain behind. And we saw the consequence of that. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. It's equipping us for a task. Have you ever had that experience in witnessing where verses are coming into your mind you had forgotten years ago? Where'd that come from? Well, I got a good memory. No, you got a good Holy Spirit who equips us for a task. And when the task is done, so is the filling. Now, I do believe that there is a yieldedness in the scripture. That's in Romans 6, Romans 8. There is yieldedness to God, but it's not filling. Filling is the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit to equip me for a task. That fits the helps part. You remember when we started? He's our helper. How many of you are tired? Come on. Yeah. I'm tired. Aren't you? No. You will be one day. And what do you do? And maybe this is why I've come to appreciate these doctrines more in my old age. Lord, I need your helper's help. And I, as I told you at the beginning, even say divine helper. I need your help. I'm more aware of that than ever. We need the Lord's help. We need the Holy Spirit's help. That's called filling. For a specific task. He teaches us. He assures us. In time of. Questioning our salvation. 
Number 13. We don't know how to pray sometimes. Katie and John and Dave and myself, numerous others, are uh, grieving over seeing a dear young lady with three little children getting sicker and sicker. She has had three kinds of cancer, three different kinds of cancer, a one-year-old child. We have prayed and prayed, and we don't know how to pray anymore. And you come before God and you groan. Do you know that? Lord, here I am praying. I don't know what to say. It's apparent what is happening. We believe in miracles, but we also understand that three different kinds of cancer in advanced stages leads to something. And it's not extraordinary to have a memo that we receive that families gathering around. You don't say why, but you know why, right? And you groan and you cry. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit who is with us groans within us and takes those prayers that we don't even know how to pray and makes intercession for us according to the will of God because he knows God's will. He knows all things. He is God. And he takes our groans and we don't know what to pray. My father got very ill and needed round-the-clock care, and we had arranged for him to be in a nursing home. And Melzi and I dropped him off and went through the process and all. And he said to Melzi, pray the Lord take me home. He had said that a number of times before, and she'd always say, that's the Lord's doing, Pop. No. Going home, she said to me, I'm going to pray the Lord take him home. When he got home, there was a phone call. He had died. I said, don't you pray for me? <laughs> yeah. It is so wonderful to know that we have a helper when we really need help. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to pray. We're groaning. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with prayers that we cannot utter. And he prays according to the will of God. Because he knows the will of God. He is God. And he's the member of the Trinity that Jesus says, I'll not leave you an orphan. I'll send a helper to you. And a helper is a behind-the-scene person, remember? In the next three segments, there's not a lot to say. Because the Bible doesn't say much. In the book of Revelation, he's hardly mentioned. I'll look at the closing part of it and close with that ourselves. After inspiring the whole of the book, book of Revelation, and in fact the whole of the Bible, and revealing the whole plan of God through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that new revelation of the church, 
and then reestablishing Israel in the land and taking them through the millennium. And now uh, you're at the end of that revelation. And at the end of the revelation, this is the way it goes. Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I come quickly. And there's this closing statement of the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church. And they pray, come Lord Jesus. Don't we look forward to that? The book is completed. Here's this great plan. He had just talked about uh, the tribulation and all of the detail of that. And, and this uh, eternal city, this city that will be our dwelling place with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the holy angels, all of saved Israel, all of the saved church, all of the saved Gentiles that come out of the millennium as saved Gentiles, as the nations go to worship. And in and, and great explanation, point exclamation point here's this great plan finish it come lord jesus the holy spirit and the bride say come lord jesus don't we i'd be willing to exchange here for heaven for the millennial glory for the eternal state wouldn't you yeah come lord jesus Let's close with a prayer we all know. It's a kingdom prayer. It's the one the Lord taught his disciples about the kingdom. They asked him twice in different provinces, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them this. We call it the Lord's Prayer. The the kingdom statement in that prayer is, Steve, your kingdom, the literal, earthly, political Jesus kingdom the millennial kingdom, to be followed by eternity. So let's close our time together, looking forward to the working of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son taking us to our eternal predetermined place of forever being with the Lord. I think we know it by heart still, don't we? Let's pray. Our Father... And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Next year, Jerusalem. Next year, heaven. Next year, the eternal state. Praise the Lord. God go with you. Thank you.